the historical Jesus. Now, I've given you four pages of handouts, and obviously we're not going to be able to uh, go in depth on all four of these pages. But the first thing I want you to look at is the Jesus Seminar there. Uh, the Jesus Seminar, a group of New Testament scholars began to meet in 1985. They've got only about 74 members right now, but they took votes on uh, which sayings of Jesus are, are authentic. Okay, So, because of their bias against the supernatural, um, they think that, you know, Jesus, no way Jesus claimed to be God. There's no way that... Uh, he said he could do miracles. There's no way that he claimed to be the Messiah or the Savior and things of that sort. So they produced their own uh, color-coded uh, book entitled The Five Gospels. They took the Gospel of Thomas, which is a heretical work written by Gnostics. Uh, uh, basically, they were heretics who believed were saved by secret knowledge. And... Um, and the Gospel of Thomas wasn't written by Thomas the Apostle. It was a guy who was pretending that it was written by the Apostle Thomas so that maybe somebody would believe it. Well, these guys took the Gospel of Thomas and they hold it with as much, as, as much respect as the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though there's no, no real evidence that the Gospel of Thomas was written any earlier than 140 A.D. And, uh, but whatever the case, they're color-coded the five Gospels they, you know, if, if they code something in red, that means that they believe that Jesus definitely said it. If it's in pink, Jesus probably said it. In gray, Jesus possibly said it. In black, Jesus definitely did not say it. Well, when you look at the results of their work in the Gospel of John, there's no red. There's only one pink thing. So there's only one thing in the Gospel of John that Jesus probably said, according to these guys. So... So for all practical purposes, you could take the Gospel of John and throw it in the garbage can. In fact, you could do that with the four Gospels if these guys are right, because over 82% of, of Jesus' sayings in the four Gospels are rejected. Okay, Only 15 sayings in the four Gospels um, are uh, read. So, I mean, so these guys hold a very little of what Jesus said to be true. Now, the reason why I'm talking about these guys is because whenever Peter Jennings or anybody and the media does a big expose on the life of Christ, these are the guys they go to. John Dominic Crossens and Robert Funks and uh, Marcus Borgs, they go to these guys, the Jesus Seminar, when in actuality, even New Testament scholars, some of the world's leading New Testament scholars today, who don't, e who don't even believe in Jesus, don't trust in Jesus for salvation, but they've made their careers in New Testament scholarship and writing books and researching. Um, most New Testament scholars today laugh about the Jesus Seminar. Um, it's not uncommon for a New Testament scholar to be presenting a paper and um, um, somebody uh, disagree with the guy who's presenting the paper so the, so the New Testament scholar would turn to the other New Testament scholars in, in the audience and say, okay, who wants to take a vote on it? And then they'll all laugh. Well, it's a slam on the Jesus Seminar. You don't decide what's historical by taking votes. Um, I'm a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. If I stood up and grabbed the microphone, okay, uh, and said, hey, let's take a vote, and um, who thinks all the sayings 
subscribe to Jesus and the four Gospels are authentic, raise your hand, you know, we'd, it'd be unanimous. Because to be a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, you have to sign a form where you believe the, the Bible in its entirety, in, the, in its original form, um, is without error and is inspired by God. So there would be no headlines. In fact, there would be not only would there not be any headlines, but if I asked the guys to take a vote, they would laugh at me. Okay? But that's exactly what the Jesus Seminar is doing because all the guys that are attending these meetings, they, they're invited, and they, they almost all of them have connections with Harvard, Claremont, or Vanderbilt, three of the most uh, radically liberal uh, schools uh, in the country, if not the world, and especially in their New Testament departments, okay? Uh, but these guys are using outdated scholarship. Um, European scholars are not represented. Euro European scholarship today, which is usually on the cutting edge in, in, uh, in thought, um, although these guys are not Bible believers, uh, European scholars are much closer to evangelical Christians in their views. In other words... Um, European scholars today will give you a large portion of the New Testament and say, yes, that's historically reliable. Now, they don't want to draw the logical conclusion from that, therefore Jesus is Lord, I need to accept Him as Savior. Um, but uh, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, you might want to grab the uh, a blue sheet and a green sheet. And Oh, that's that's... That's okay. Now, there is a fine that has to be paid, but uh, besides that, we don't... Uh, uh, um, but uh, whatever the case, uh, the vast majority of New Testament scholarship today, okay, is closer to Bible, the Bible-believing Christian view of the new, reliability of the New Testament uh, than they are to the Jesus Seminar. But unfortunately, the Jesus Seminar gets all the press. Okay, And as long as that continues to be the, the case, we're going to have to make a, a defense of uh, the Jesus... Uh, of uh, the Jesus Seminar... of uh, the uh, true Jesus of history. Now, if you look at the bottom of the page, point N on the Jesus Seminar, it's evidence for the reliability of the four Gospels is overwhelming. What I'm going to do is make a case that when you look at the manuscript evidence, when you look at the testimony of the apostolic fathers, when you just examine the evidence, we see that the New Testament that we have today really did go back to eyewitnesses who knew Jesus or people who knew eyewitnesses uh, who knew Jesus. And, um, and that basically the Jesus Seminar... When everything is said and done, it's their bias against the supernatural. They presuppose that miracles can't happen. And then they presuppose that Jesus wasn't insane, wasn't a liar. So they just say, well, if miracles don't happen, then he really he never claimed to be God. He never um, claimed to be Savior. He never performed miracles and never claimed to be able to perform miracles. Problem is, they always come up with a Jesus who would never be crucified. Okay, if your Jesus was so mellow that he didn't rock the boat, he was just some wise man who went around saying neat things. Um, those kinds of guys don't get crucified. 
Okay? If you're going to get crucified, you tick somebody off. And every time we reject the Jesus of the Bible and say he's not the Jesus of history and we look for a different Jesus, it always turns out to be a Jesus that uh, wouldn't even be worth killing. I mean, he just he wouldn't upset anybody. And so basically, when you look at the list of, of things that uh, we could... Uh, that we're going to be referring to as evidence for the four Gospels, they would be evidence for the New Testament uh, as well. Now, if you turn the page over, the top of the page, it says the reliability of the New Testament. Um, when, you, when we're dealing with ancient manuscripts, manuscripts before like 300 A.D., okay, when we're dealing with ancient manuscripts, um, we don't have the originals of anything, Okay? So in ancient manuscripts, all we have are copies. Okay, we don't have copies of the of the New or the Old Testament. We don't have the originals of them. So all we have are ancient uh, copies. This goes for all all of literature. Okay, and um, so what you do is you, you have to determine. Okay, are the copies that we have that still exist today are they a reliable? piece of information about what the original said. Do they reliably um, reflect the originals? Okay? And the four tests that are used when you examine manuscripts are the number of copies. That's number one. Okay? How many copies are there? What's the, uh, the, uh, the earliest, the oldest copy that you have, and how big or how small of the gap is there between this earliest copy and when the originals were written? The accuracy of the copies, do they agree with one another or are there a lot of contradictions between them? And um, um, so uh, those are three. Another test is the widely copies distributed throughout the world. When you put all of these together, the New Testament is by far the most reliable of all ancient writings. There are over 26,000 uh, manuscripts of the New Testament, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament in existence, okay? Um, in second place in ancient literature is Homer's Iliad with only 643 copies. I mean, Plato's writings, there's only 12 copies in existence. No, actually, only 7 copies of Plato's writings still in the ancient copies still in existence. So, but nobody doubts what Plato said. See, and the main difference is you can accept, okay, Plato did write that, and you don't have to bend the knee, okay? But if you acknowledge Jesus really did say these things, Jesus really did do these things, I mean, that's going to make some big changes on your life. The moment a decision has come, you, you've got to bow, either bow before his throne or deep down inside know that you're, you know, marching towards the, the flames of hell. So... Um, it's easier to say, okay, we'll accept Plato based on, on seven copies, but we won't accept the New Testament uh, based on 26,000 copies. Now, um, when you uh, compare the copies with the New Testament, um, you take the majority of the copies of the New Testament, and you have about a 99.5% agreement between the copies, okay? The only differences are sometimes... Spelling of a word has changed with time, like they changed the spelling of a city, or a copy of stereo left out a word or a phrase or a sentence. Um, um, so uh, the differences are these mistakes that really don't affect the doctrine or anything. 
Um, and usually from examining the, these copies, uh, you can usually see, okay, well, if, if only one copy out of 26,000 says this, um, and the others disagree, then the others are probably true. Or if all the older copies say a certain thing and then only the newer ones differ, maybe we should side with the older copies here. But that's what those notes, it's called textual criticism. Your Bible's either at the bottom of the page or in the middle of the column. They'll give you those little, you know, uh, the, the oldest manuscripts don't contain this verse. Uh, or the majority of manuscripts contain this verse. You know, things of that sort. And so when you do textual criticism with ancient literature, the New Testament comes out by far uh, in first place. Homer's Iliad, again, is second place. It's 95% agreement between their 643 copies. Um, uh, Plato, since there's only uh, seven copies, they don't even bother. They're probably identical. They're probably all copies from the same guy copying from the same manuscript. So they don't even bother... Uh, uh, including the uh, results of that test there. Um, but uh, the, the gap, the, the earliest uh, New Testament fragment that we have, undisputed New Testament fragment, is, is the John Ryland's papyri. It's a fragment of John chapter 18, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And... Uh, it was dated at about 125 to 135 A.D. Now there's people who are arguing it should be dated closer to 100 A.D. So at, at the most, you've only got a gap of about 25 years from when John wrote the Gospel, when the original was written, to when the copy, the earliest copy is. Okay, uh, With Homer's Iliad, that's the in second place of ancient literature. There's a 500-year gap. Okay, Now having said that, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in Cave 7, they're, they're the only Greek manuscripts in all the Dead Sea Scrolls. And a Spanish scholar, I don't know why, but he was named O'Callaghan, but a Spanish scholar named O'Callaghan had identified one of the fragments with Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, another fragment of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. The problem is, you get these liberal critics who want to date Mark's Gospel about 68 A.D. and 70 A.D., problem is the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Romans lambasted the area in 68 A.D. So that's the latest you can date any of the scrolls. And that's too early for copies, if the liberal scholars are correct. So they're not willing to accept that. But Karsten P. Thede has taken O'Callaghan's work and through computer technology has proven that there is no known writing from ancient Greek literature that has the same combination of letters of that fragment that was found in Cave 7 other than Mark's Gospel, Chapter 6. Now, does that mean the New Testament scholars accept it? No, because it disagrees with their theories. So, um, so basically what I'm saying is it appears that we do have some copies that... Um, go right back to the time of the originals themselves, okay? But but don't hold your breath and expect New Testament critics to accept it. But basically, if you just, if you just look at the manuscript evidence alone, the New Testament is by far the most reliable of all ancient writings. Um, now, we go to the Apostolic Fathers. Um, 
the apostolic fathers, they were the pupils of the apostles whom the apostles selected to lead the early church. Okay? Supposing uh, the early church was patterned after the Jewish synagogue. Supposing we were, were Jewish and we were uh, all formed one synagogue, okay? And uh, I was getting up in years and I knew that I couldn't, couldn't teach as much anymore. And I went to that gentleman back there and I brought him up and I told everybody, okay, he's going to take over for me now. I'm going to retire. I'm getting up in years and I'm going to go be with the Lord soon. So he's going to take over. Uh, do you think I would do that if he was like a C-minus student? No. I mean, I'm going to pick the guy who's getting straight A's. The pupil who knows. So, so since the apostles selected the apostolic fathers to succeed them in leading the early church, it meant these were their A-plus students. These were the cream of the crop students. So the apostolic fathers knew, knew better what Jesus said. I would accept their opinion before I would accept the opinion of the Jesus Seminar characters who come on the scene 2,000 years later. Okay? Well, when you read the apostolic fathers, you know, Clement to Rome, writing in 95 AD, the bishop of Rome, um, he refers to Jesus as Lord, and it's very clearly in the context where he's basically calling Jesus God. Um, and he reports the same types of things that, that we find. I mean, when you put the Apostolic Fathers together, they quoted the New Testament. They taught that Jesus is God, that he died a sacrificial death for our sins, that he bodily rose from the dead, and that salvation is only through him. Ignatius, when he was probably from 107, either 107 or 115 A.D., when he was en route to be uh, uh, thrown to the beast, he wrote seven letters. And in his letters, over and over again, he refers to Jesus as our, our God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Over and over again. See, and he was a pupil of the Apostle John. And so he knew that Jesus, that John taught that Jesus is God and Savior. Um, he also taught that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, and that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So uh, uh, Polycarp was a pupil of the Apostle John. He was the last of the apostolic fathers to die. He died in 156 A.D. He called Jesus God in his writings. Um, Papias even told us that Matthew wrote his gospel first. So all these New Testament scholars today that say Mark's gospel came first, Matthew <coughs> came later... That's not what the pupils of the apostles taught. Pupils of the apostles said Matthew's gospel came first. Um, and then he said that Mark wrote his gospel after Peter departed from Rome. Well, Peter departed from Rome about 44 A.D. So, um, so the dates of the gospels are much closer to the events than our uh, liberal critics would have us believe today. Um, so when you look at the apostolic fathers, they form an, you know, you can go back from church fathers and form an unbroken chain right back to the New Testament. So if these are fairy tales, if the deity of Christ, if Jesus being, that's a fairy tale, okay, there's no evidence for it. I mean, if that is a fairy tale, where, where did the legend begin? Because no matter how far back we go, it's the same story. I mean, when you go to the ancient secular writers... Okay, these were non-Christians. They didn't believe, so they didn't say, "Hey, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead." But they said some interesting things that confirmed 
what the early church believed. Thallus in 52 AD was still trying to explain away the darkness that overcame the earth when Christ was crucified. Okay? Um, uh, Tacitus talks about how uh, Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate and that um, um, uh, Christians were basically persecuted for, for following him. He talks about, too, that Christianity was checked for the moment when Christ... He talked, referred to the early Christian belief as uh, a, super, a mischievous superstition. So there were like supernatural, you know, there were claims from the start. But this guy's writing in 112 AD, and he was reporting the history here. And he says that when Christ died, Christianity was checked for the moment. But then after a short time, a short interval, all of a sudden it started spreading all throughout uh, the Roman Empire. Well, I mean, all you got to do is read your Bible, and you can tell, you can you can figure out exactly how long that interval was. It was 50 days long. Jesus was crucified on Passover, rose from the dead on the third day, appeared to his disciples for 40 days, but then told them to wait in Jerusalem, and it was the Feast of Pentecost, which means basically 50 days, 50 days after the Passover, when the church was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter preached the message that had been in hiding for 50 days. But um, here Tacitus even talks about that, that time period there. Um, you get guys like Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Emperor Trajan, Emperor Hadrian, all between 112 and 117 AD. You had guys writing back, government officials writing back to the Roman Emperor and said, hey, what's the proper way to persecute a Christian? And the responses were always, hey, if they deny Christ, and bow before our gods, let them free. Okay? And uh, so basically, these Christians who were dying... And, and, and why did Christians coin the phrase, Jesus is Lord? Because the Roman Empire, even from the time of Paul, was, was trying to force people to say, Caesar is Lord. So, because they refused to say, Caesar is God, okay... Um, see, Christians were not, Francis Shaver points out, Christians, early Christians were not put to death because they believed in Jesus. Okay? They were put to death because they believed in Jesus alone. They were put to death because they, they said, look, um, we're not going to worship Caesar, the Roman gods, plus Jesus. We're going to worship Jesus alone. And also because they acknowledged God's authority as above the, the Roman emperor. And that was thought as, as uh, tantamount to treason, to acknowledge an authority above the Roman Empire. But whatever the case, Pliny the Younger says that they sing the hymns to Jesus as to a god. So, you know, he's writing this in 112 AD, saying that these Christians, these early Christians, worship Jesus as God. This, is, this wasn't legends that developed later, okay? Even Josephus records... He was a Jewish historian writing the, Jew, the history of the Jews for the Romans. Lived from 37 A.D. to 97 A.D. And he records that when... You know, this, this guy he was a young man and Paul was still alive. Okay, But he said that Christians told him that they had seen Jesus alive after he had been crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now, he didn't say that he believed it. But he confirmed that the first-generation Christians believed that Jesus was the Savior, the Messiah, 
and that he had risen from the dead. Okay? So, I mean, no matter how far we go back, the story remains the same. Now, there's, there's actually ancient creeds found in the New Testament, okay? Ancient creeds found in the New Testament which predate the New Testament. Paul says things, he uses the language of the rabbis. I delivered to you what I also received. That's the way a rabbi would pass on oral tradition. I delivered to you what I received from my rabbi. Um, one of the things Paul passed on was 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. Okay? And by the way, even liberal critics acknowledge that the Apostle Paul wrote um, most of the letters attributed to him. There's some debate about First and Second Timothy and Titus for them, but that's, that's a whole other issue there. Um, but they acknowledge that 1 Corinthians was written in approximately 54 A.D., yet Paul there gives an ancient creed. He says, I delivered to you what I also received. And then he starts talking about Christ dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, and then appearing to all these different people and then to over 500 people at one time, most of whom remain until now, Paul says. He adds that to the creed. And then Paul says, and he also appeared to me, not only to James and to Peter, but he appeared to me. Um, Paul is not only saying that I am an eyewitness, but he's saying that these other 500 eyewitnesses, if you Corinthians don't believe me, go and talk to them. He's putting his apostolic authority on the line. The New Testament critics don't want to call him a liar. Okay? Uh, but they also acknowledge that this is an ancient creed. It was either recited or a hymn that was sung in the early churches, okay? And um, since James is mentioned by name and Peter in his Aramaic name, Cephas, and it reads better in Aramaic, it reads like a poem in Aramaic, you translate it into uh, Greek and it reads real choppy, uh, they believe that it was an ancient... Most New Testament scholars acknowledge it as an ancient creed or hymn that was recited or sung in the early churches and that it predates the church becoming predominantly Gentile. So it goes, so it's before 44 AD, okay? Um, but then, most New Testament critics will admit, okay, Peter probably got this. You know, he, he's talking the language of a rabbi, so he's saying, what I received from, from my teachers, I gave to you, Okay? Now, although Paul said that he didn't get his apostleship from, from the apostles, he got it from Jesus, and he didn't get his gospel from the apostles, he got that from Jesus, uh, he does say that he got this creed from somebody. Okay? I mean, when Paul got something directly from Jesus, he'll come out and tell you. You look at the creed that he got in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I, I delivered to you what I also received from the Lord. So when Jesus appeared to Paul, he gave him the Last Supper account. That's what Paul's got in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul didn't say, I got that from the from Matthew or from uh, uh, Peter. He said he got it directly from the Lord. But here he probably got it from James and Peter. And um, a few years after his conversion, between 33 and 37 AD, in Galatians 1, he talks about his meeting with James and Peter. And so uh, many New Testament scholars date this ancient creed listing, uh, giving a, an abridged list of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and um, 
most would date it between 33 and 37 AD. There isn't enough time for legends to develop. He realized A. Uh, A. W. N. Uh, Sherwin White, uh, a historical expert on ancient Roman history, he found that it takes several centuries for a legend to totally wipe out core historical truth. Okay. Um, you don't have a couple centuries here. With the ancient creeds, now you're going right back to just a few years from Christ's death. You can't have legends divide. It took several centuries for the deification of Buddha in certain Buddhist circles, because Buddha never claimed to be God. Um, so, you know, um, you just don't have time for legends. And, uh, and, 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 and you know, to, to say the apostles were writing myths, that's not what they said. They tell you who, who the king was at that particular time and what year of his reign. These guys were claiming to report history. Nobody wants to call them liars. Nobody wants to call them insane. Um, yet we have some people who want to deny that what they were teaching was historically reliable. Um, okay, um, uh, the Philippians chapter 2, 6 to 11, ancient creed. Uh, talks about Jesus being God and, and then becoming a man, adding a human nature. Romans 10.9 talks about, you know, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, let's skip down to uh, chapter 6. Um, I already mentioned that Papias tells us that Matthew wrote his gospel first. I mean, let me say this. Um, Liberal scholars are constantly looking for the Q document. What the Q document is, supposedly it's a, a, it's a, uh, a list of the sayings, a writing containing the sayings of Jesus, and there's nothing supernatural about it. But because they're convinced miracles can't happen, they're convinced that there must be this Q document, and the Gospels we have today are perversions of it. Okay? And number one, there's 26,000 copies of the New Testament. There's zero copies of the Q document. There's no evidence it ever existed. Uh, however, if a Q document, if a document existed with the, just the sayings of Jesus, two things. Number one, you would still have Jesus claiming to be God, claiming to be Savior and all, uh, claiming to be able to perform miracles. But number two, um, if there is a Q document, or if there was a Q document, I think I could name the author. And these guys won't even speculate, but I think I could name the author. I think his name was Matthew. Um, because Papias tells us that Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Aramaic, which was the Hebrew of that day. But then, when he left, left Jerusalem, which was probably around 44 AD, when the apostles got kicked out of Jerusalem due to persecution, then he translated it into Greek, for the Gentiles and all, okay, and in, and he may have enlarged it because in you know there wasn't a, I don't think there was a big emphasis about putting in writing what Jesus did in the Jerusalem church. Reason is everybody knew what he did. He didn't have to write down that it got dark when he was crucified, dead people came to life when he was crucified, um, the. 
veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom when he was crucified. He didn't have to tell people about that. They knew what happened in, in there. So uh, uh, at the same time, if I, if I was God and I became a man, and I was going to spend the bulk of my time with 12 guys, whoa, one, one of them being a, a traitor, um, I would make sure one of those guys took notes. Okay? Now you look at the list of the apostles, okay? A bunch of roughneck type guys. Um, the guy that seems to be me to be the most likely guy to be the stenographer for Jesus was Matthew. He was a tax collector. He had to know how to write, he had to know how to keep good records, okay? So I think originally he had primarily the sayings of Jesus, but then when he, in, in Hebrew, in the Aramaic, in Aramaic, but then when he went, I was going to be preaching outside of the Palestine area, he figured, well, I've got to translate it into Greek, but i also got to put the historical context there, because these people weren't in Palestine. They didn't know what was going on down there. So, um, um, but whatever the case, um, Papias tells us Matthew wrote the first gospel. Again, he tells us that Mark got his gospel from Peter, that originally was known as the Gospel of Peter, but then as time went on, um, John Mark got such a big name in the church that people just referred to it as the Gospel of John Mark. Um, uh, but Luke and Acts, you realize that both were written to Theophilus that Acts is the sequel of Luke, and Acts, the focus, is on Peter and Paul's ministry, and it stops right about 60, 61 A.D. with Paul in, in chains going to Rome. doesn't even tell us that he later on he got released, did some more preaching, and then he got arrested again, and then was uh, beheaded. doesn't tell us anything about Peter's death. Okay? If you're going to write about Peter and Paul's ministry, write a book about it, I think your readers would be very disappointed if you didn't include their death, especially if you got a lot of details, and then you just, and then, you know, Paul gets off the boat, he's in chains, he's in Rome, he's greeted, the end. I mean, what an anticlimactic uh, ending, okay? The only thing that makes sense is that it ended there because that was right up to the point he was writing, that, you know, right there is when he got finished writing it and they mailed it out to Theopolis. Problem is, if you date uh, Acts at 61 A.D., then you got to date the Gospel of Luke in the 50s A.D., since Acts is the sequel to it. And um, so, um, so there's really good evidence there. Um, John's Gospel. If the Apostle John himself didn't write the Gospel of John, okay, you got to explain two things. How come this guy had some intimate knowledge about Jesus, like when Jesus was with Nicodemus at night? Sounds like he was there. Why in the world? How close you got to be to Jesus that Jesus is going to take you with him, but he's not going to take Peter and Andrew? And there's like lots of those things in there where he talks about stuff the other gospels, the other gospel writers didn't even seem to have knowledge of. And he talks about one of the disciples whom Jesus loved that rested his head on Jesus' shoulder. Yeah, you look at all four Gospels, only one Gospel doesn't mention John by name. 
And that's the Gospel of John. He, the, oh, John was so close to Jesus that if you're not going to mention him by name, you, you've, you've got to not mention him. You've got to do that on purpose, okay? And, uh, and I think it was just John's humility. But, but, but basically, you can, you can even look at some of, the, some of the things that he reports in there. Um, the only guys that would have known about it would have been Peter, James, or John. Yet, the author mentions Peter and James so we know it's not, not them. And this was written after Peter and James were dead. And uh, through process of elimination, it's pretty obvious that John is the author. Paul's letters almost universally accepted now, 50s and 60s A.D. See, in 1 Corinthians 15, nobody's going to call Paul a liar when he reports the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Uh, the book of Hebrews. The author is arguing against Jews who accepted Jesus as Savior, but now because of persecution, we're thinking of going back to the temple and to the Jewish faith and, and uh, uh, leaving their Christianity behind. His argument over and over again, the author of Hebrews is, look, Jesus is sitting down. He offered one sacrifice for the sins of mankind. It worked. He's done. He's now seated. The priest in the temple, they're still standing. Their work is not done. Therefore, the bloodshed of animals doesn't take away sins. Okay? Now, let me say this. He didn't argue this way. Look, if the temple sacrifices really take away sins, then why did God allow the temple to be destroyed in 70 A.D.? Or why did God allow the temple to be destroyed a few years ago? He doesn't argue like that. The reason why he doesn't argue like that, the temple is still standing. That's part of his argument. He's, he's arguing a case with people that disagree with him, and his primary evidence is those Old Testament priests are still standing in the temple offering sacrifices to this day. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. What does that tell you about his sacrifice? It accomplished what he set out to do. These others are just types that point to Jesus. But basically the argument, the whole book of Hebrews makes no sense whatsoever unless the temple is still standing. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Hence, Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. And we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, but he wasn't Paul, because uh, um, he said that um, he received the gospel message from those who knew the Lord. He, he didn't claim to know the Lord personally himself. You read Paul's writings, Paul said he got his gospel directly from the Lord, because Jesus appeared to him several times. And, uh, and trained him. Uh, not so with the author of Hebrews. Uh, but the author of Hebrews knew T Timothy personally and, uh, and uh, writes about him in there. So, so he was in that inner circle. Uh, Martin Luther thought Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. I think that's the best, uh, best guess um, that I've ever heard of. Um, okay, if you turn to uh, Christ's resurrection, indeed he's got a number four at the top which means absolutely nothing for our purposes, but um, basically what I'm getting at is this. Um, if the Jesus Seminar, anybody wants to say that the New Testament does not reliable, is, is not reliable, it doesn't record um, what was really written, 
Um, it doesn't give us uh, information from the uh, eyewitnesses who knew Jesus, um, that Jesus really never claimed to be God and that type of thing. Basically, what I've argued up to this point is what these guys are actually saying is, look, all the evidence points to the New Testament and the Gospels being reliable. But all this evidence goes against our presupposition, our bias against the supernatural. Therefore, it couldn't be that way, so we're going to reject entire portions of the New Testament. But, but basically, you know, they'll accept Q with no copies of Q and no evidence for Q, and they'll reject the New Testament with 26,000 copies of the New Testament and all this evidence for the New Testament. So, you know, after a while you start to wonder, uh, you start to realize that the uh, relationship of evidence with scholarship is not always a compatible thing. You know, sometimes scholars say, hey, you know, I'll use the evidence only so long as it backs my views. I, I can go against it any time I want. But having said this, you know, most... New Testament scholars today will acknowledge that the vast majority of what we have in our New Testament today is historically reliable, okay? Um, in fact, uh, if you turn that page over, where it says evidence for Jesus' resurrection, out of the uh, first, out of the, there's 12 points there as evidence for Jesus' resurrection, most New Testament scholars today will give you the first 11. The Shroud of Turin, I put with a question mark. Most New Testament scholars haven't even looked into the evidence for the Shroud of Turin, so they just, you know, they're neither here nor there on it. Now, I, I do give presentations on the Shroud of Turin, and um, the evidence is, is, is overwhelmingly in favor of the authenticity of the Shroud. Even carbon-14 uh, testing of the Shroud... Um, has been overturned probably as early as 1991. I don't think anybody really seriously uh, considered it evidence against the Shroud any longer. But we don't have time to go into that, but um, maybe someday I'll get a chance to come out and, and, and give a talk on that, uh, on the Shroud of Turin. Um, but whatever the case, uh, most New Testament scholars, the vast majority of them, Okay, Jesus Seminar is an, is an exception to the rule. They are this radical, far-left branch. Um, most New Testament scholars, even non-believing New Testament scholars, wouldn't give them the time of day. But most New Testament scholars acknowledge that James, the half-brother of Jesus, mocked Jesus and that his life was drastically changed to the point where he was willing to die for the Christian faith. Uh, they acknowledged that Paul went from being the leading persecutor of the Christians to being uh, the, the early church's greatest evangelist, missionary, and theologian. So his life was changed. And that Peter went from this coward who denied Jesus three times, uh, went into becoming this bold, courageous defender of the Christian faith who was eventually crucified upside down. Um, how do you explain their lives being changed? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, all three guys are mentioned. 
And, you know, if they saw Jesus risen from the dead, that would explain why they changed so drastically. You take away Christ's resurrection and his res post-resurrection appearances to them, and you just have guys that just love their lives just drastically change, and there's no explanation for it whatsoever. The empty tomb. William Lane Craig, a friend of mine, listed uh, 44 of the world's leading New Testament scholars who acknowledge um, that the tomb was empty. Um, I could probably add another 15 names, and I'm sure William Lane Craig could probably add another 50 names at this point because he wrote this book back in 79. Um, but, um, you know, if the tomb was not empty, uh, the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities would have crushed Christianity in embryo form uh, by just finding the tomb, producing the rotting corpse of Christ, and, and crushing Christianity. Um, okay, um, at that's point four. Skip down to point nine. It's, it's widely acknowledged that the resurrection was preached in Jerusalem. Uh, in Acts chapters 1 to 12. Uh, New Testament scholars, from examining the sermons of Acts chapters 1 through 12, find uh, that the sermons preached there have telltale signs that they were very early. They go back to the 30s A.D. So how do you get these guys in these sermons, they preach that Christ rose from the dead and were witnesses of it. How do you get these guys preaching that Christ rose from the dead if the tomb wasn't empty? Okay. Um, okay, the women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the first ones to see the resurrected Christ. Now, we might think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that is there's no reason why the apostles would have fabricated that. This was at a time when a woman's testimony did not hold up in a court of law. So if you're going to start your own religion and fabricate stories about it, you get like guys like Peter and, 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 Jay, uh, Peter and John be the first ones to find it, that type of thing. See, it's like when I debated Elliot Ratzman at Princeton University last year, um, his, you know, he, he stated two things during the debate, and um, that I did, he really did horrible, I have to admit. He's a nice guy, but he really did horrible. But he, um, he said, I read through the Gospels, and... Um, how could anybody follow these guys? These guys were a bunch of bungling idiots. Okay? And, um... But then what was, what was the other thing he said? He said they were a bunch of idiots. Who would ever follow them? And, oh, and then he said that they fabricated these things. They obviously...